Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then, there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Sunday night edition of the Dunktown Basketball Podcast. The first round is in the books. Our sole game seven as the Jazz handled the Clippers pretty easily as it turned out. 104-91 in LA. Also Boston and Washington game one. Got to talk about that one. Celtics taking it 123-111 after a 16-0 start from the Wizards. Also need to preview Toronto and Cleveland and Spurs Rockets. And uh, maybe we'll get some news as well if we got time. Maybe we'll save that for tomorrow. Not sure yet, but uh, I'm sure you know we'll run short and run out of time, right, Danny? That totally sounds like us. We never, we never, yeah. we never get caught in caught in any sidetracks or discuss any legacy things with any players that are maybe changing teams or retiring. <laughs> Uh, we are sponsored today by our friends at Blue Apron. Blueapron.com slash Capspace is your URL to get your first three meals free with free shipping. And Indochino, use that Capspace code to get any premium Indochino suit for just $389. So let's start here with Utah and the Clippers. Um, I wanted to pick the Jazz in this game. I said that I only gave the Clippers a 60% chance, which is much lower than typical for a Game 7 home team. Typically, that's been... An 80% win rate for a game seven home team. And I thought that the Clippers got a ton of stuff that was unsustainable in game six. I thought the Jazz just didn't play that well. They shot pretty poorly. And, you know, it was just one kind of weird half basically where the Clippers outplayed the Jazz. But, you know, I just wanted to believe in, in Chris Paul and the magic of playing at home in a game seven. And I should have gone with my instincts because the Jazz are just the better team with Blake Griffin out of the lineup. And, you know, honestly, I don't think it's very close. What vexed me with this was just how well the Clippers played in the second half of game six and Gobert potentially having, well, he didn't potentially have, he had a sprained ankle. That spooked me off of what I had felt before. And I understand that, you know, you take new input and you, you incorporate it into your projection like that. I don't, I don't, I don't feel bad about changing my, changing my thoughts from what I had before, but this was a reminder, not only of how good the jazz are, but how deep they are because Rudy Gobert played and he looked all right. He was only on the floor for 13 minutes and Derek Favors was very good in in his stead yeah he was and the Jazz definitely got a rough whistle in this one but nonetheless they still dominated anyway I mean and Chris Paul finally ran out of gas in this series only 13 points six of 19 from the field nine assists in the second half he only had three points and four assists and part of that I think was due to the fact that he clearly sprained his right ankle coming down from a missed lefty layup in the third quarter and also because Jamal Crawford got hot and they were running it through him a little bit more but the problem of course for the Clippers was with their normal lineups on the floor they couldn't score Luka Bamute only played 15 minutes in this game after playing you know 35 minutes a game basically for most of the series they went with Rivers more Ray Felton got 24 minutes Ray Felton was basically playing at the three whenever he was in the game with Paul he was guarding Gordon Hayward and you know that they went with more Paul Pierce to get more offense on the floor because they couldn't score early in in these games but then of course when the Clippers finally got going Chris Paul was like yeah you know we just couldn't get any stops on the stretch well that's because you're playing Austin Rivers at the four and Jamal Crawford and J.J at the two and the three how are you supposed to stop anybody and and so ultimately it was just that this Clippers roster wasn't deep enough didn't have enough two-way players especially with Griffin out I think they even missed Griffin's defense more than they missed his offense in this series it was huge both ways and just again this is something we'll talk about in the second game of the day the lack of alternatives the lack of mitigation dam of damage Austin Rivers yeah he's a better offensive player than Mbamute he still was four of 12 from the field one of four from three and two of his finishes were 
two of the best I've seen from him. So you think about what his sample was outside of that, you know, he, it wasn't a great offensive performance for him. But DeAndre Jordan, I thought overall had a very good game before his his wheels kind of came off after the game was already lost. But he was a huge positive for them. They didn't have anything other than him in their entire front court, though. Yeah, although he was 6-15 to 15 from the foul line. Again, we kind of forget that with him. He did have 24 points and 17 rebounds, 6 offensive rebounds. But, you know, if he actually hits like a normal percentage of free throws, they're a lot more in the game than they were. But, I, I mean, we saw for the Clippers, three guys in double figures. Crawford, who was great with, with 20 points. Jordan with 24. Paul with 13. Utah had seven players in double figures. That's really impressive. And some of that comes from a couple of guys playing fewer minutes, so they were able to balance the rotation a little bit but also remember how in game six i said that very few of the jazz players played good games they had a lot of guys i thought that played good games in seven yeah and i thought Derek favors was outstanding his ability to and george hill talked about this too in his post-game presser that favors ability to get that or actually no it was snyder who talked about it hill talked about their pick and roll defense which we'll get to but uh snyder said yeah favors ability to catch that pocket pass and shoot the mid-range jumper or, or shoot a floater i think favors i want to say was maybe four out of five on that shot uh that was big as they were struggling for some offense early in the game because deandre jordan i mean the clippers varied their pick and roll coverage throughout the series mostly though they had jordan hang back and take away shots at the rim and so that enabled the jazz to really get going in the mid-range favors was part of that hayward finally got some mid-range shots to go down rodney hood finally made a mid-ranger for uh, the first time in the series uh, he'd been 0 for 9 coming in and overall the jazz shot chart was revealing in this one they shot 51 percent and 10 out of 18 in the paint non-restricted area and then a further 18 out of 26 in the restricted area so they weren't hitting a ton of mid-rangers and the clippers defense did take away their three-pointers extremely well the jazz were only six out of 13 for the whole game on threes so they took that away but the jazz just had shot makers who were able to make those plays uh, in the short painted area and then they got to the foul line as well especially in a third quarter where the Clippers just kept committing dumb fouls in the penalty. They committed at least four, might even been five non-shooting fouls when they were in the bonus to just give up free throws. And we're talking, you know, over the back breakers, plays way down the floor, like that weren't even where a guy was in a threatening position to score. And that's what really helped the Jazz get out to that insurmountable lead in the third quarter when they put up 33 points on... 24 possessions, a 138 offensive rating in that quarter. Something we talked about on the Twitter NBA show today, and I think this was a particularly salient point, I think you're the one who brought it up, was that, especially, and I think this third quarter encapsulated it, Game 7 was more like what we thought Game 6 was supposed to be, and Utah yeah. exerting their control and taking taking their advantages when they presented themselves, and the Clippers just didn't have enough counters, they didn't have enough personnel to make it work, and when especially when Chris Paul turned his ankle on that lefty layup, they didn't have have enough to really make it work. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And and the magic had already kind of run out a little bit for Paul. Anyway, they went six out of 25 on threes, but I don't really remember them missing very many open ones. It was Crawford pulling up contested, Paul really late in the clock, Rivers, uh, JJ Redick was one out of five, only played 22 minutes, one of two on three-pointers. He scored three points. What a nightmare series it was for him, by the way, as the Jazz really just completely shut him down in all but one game. Just He wasn't even able to get shots. And uh he was negative 16 in this one and i thought one of the big keys this is something that uh george hill talked about in the post game was the jazz changed up their pick and roll defense even when gobert was in the game although we didn't see much of it from him that they brought their guy not necessarily a hard trap but they brought him up to the level of the ball because what chris paul likes to do is he likes to try and snake the pick and roll right he likes to get over that screen if you're hanging back as a big now he's kind of got a free run to get to the middle of the floor shoot that pull up and you've got to just hope that you're guy can somehow get over the screen and get back uh so your big can then go back and protect against the deandre role instead the jazz played more aggressively they brought their big up to the level of the ball and then so they forced paul to make a pass early he wasn't able to get an alley-oop to deandre jordan because he's too far away to make that pass and they've got another guy plugging from the weak side they had kept paul on the left side of the floor a lot which is excellent it's very difficult for paul to make a pass from the left side of the floor like a hook pass with his left hand all the way to the other side of the floor he likes to pass with his right hand and he obviously likes to shoot with his right hand as well and so 
by doing that and then you're there forcing deandre jordan to make plays at the free throw line because they had to throw it to him on a much shorter roll than they had been doing and it really just worked beautifully you know jordan he scored a lot you know he was nine out of 12 he got to the front of the rim he's great on the offensive glass he drew 97 loose ball rebounding fouls on rudy gobert uh, but it just wasn't quite enough and really until the clippers went with just the all offense lineup with rivers at the four that i referenced earlier they just could not score i mean and just there's great play after great play after great play from the jazz and a lot of these possessions especially at the start of the third i thought their defense was incredible during that period as they broke out to that lead they also had a really definitive play i think it was middle of the fourth quarter when the clippers had a couple of different opportunities i think it was reddick maybe it was crawford i'm trying to remember who was in the sequence and the jazz just there was three guys on a string and they just didn't get a good shot out of it it was super impressive yeah i forget what it might be that they got a shot clock violation out of it on that right and, and we were just raving about how awesome that was on the twitter nba show um other jazz men who definitely needed some praise george hill who had a rough series early ended this one plus 21 a team high plus 21 17 points 7 to 13 from the field from him five assists and then boris dia who we were really low on him being in the starting lineup they were getting hurt with him out there early in the series especially when he was going against blake and then really once blake went out he and then they started spades for a time then they went with paul pierce to start dr really had the advantage on pierce in the post and he also hit uh didn't hit a three he had one and one uh that was where his foot was on the line but he really was excellent plus nine in his 17 minutes had three assists and just kind of kept the offense moving a little bit more than it did when joe johnson was out there and joe i think i don't know whether it was a question of him wearing down or just you know sometimes you're not going to hit every shot because hey guess what it's a contested two a lot of the times uh, but he was only four out of 13 but he still was key i thought in the fourth quarter because they could just like run the clock down every single time when they're up by 15 and then hope to get a pretty decent shot with him you know working against a switch or something and in an iso so that that was pretty good hood finally woke up as we mentioned and then gordon hayward only seven points in the first half finished it with 26 got to the foul line two of three on three pointers he was very efficient joe ingles played 36 minutes he he was great and uh, even though hayward was kind of struggling a little bit with felton and with paul it felt like uh he was able to just be efficient enough only 20 field goal attempts to get those 26 points something else i wanted to mention you alluded to this a little bit on the fourth quarter but i think painting the fuller picture is good for especially for those who didn't watch this game because the clippers were playing so comically small during that time they were playing austin rivers at the four joe johnson had an advantage on every single person who guarded him and that's what gave them the confidence they didn't even have to force switches if they didn't want to they could have just played joe johnson on that guy and he was going to get a decent look or a couple times he got close enough and then somebody I think it was favors got a big offensive rebound and there was no counter left because they didn't have anybody else with size that they trusted on the floor when they were trying to come back from that deficit well and it's not only an issue when you go small of the on-ball defense like a guy just you know getting bludgeoned in the post it's that when you try to bring someone over to help they just don't have the size or when they do try to help into the lane and then try to close out they don't have the length to really contest the shot like joe ingles for example got like a couple of shots that he was able to get off pretty nicely as he went two of three on threes because they just didn't have the length someone like felton or reddick or crawford or even austin rivers like they just don't have the length to bother three-point shooters and they did well to take away those three-point shots but a lot of times you know they would have to close out really hard and they get blown by i thought the jazz offense was pretty good and they put up a very solid 117 offensive rating in this game and even with the Clippers late flurry held them to 101 what did the final pace turn out in this game do you have that handy 90 possessions and that was so slow for the most part yeah and that still would be I mean the Jazz were 93 possessions this year so that's below what the Jazz would usually be running and uh the Clippers just weren't able to get out in transition at all I mean that was another thing too like they a lot of times like Reddick can get some threes in transition and they just you know they didn't have it and Paul finally to me uh, wore down as we mentioned and you know, he started getting beat a little bit by George Hill and pick and roll and he just he was just out of energy by the enemy he had to do so much in this series I, I don't blame him frankly offensively and defensively I mean he he battling through screens there were a couple of just unbelievable possessions where he was on Hayward or he was on on Hill and fighting through screens by guys like Derek Favors and Rudy Gobert I'm continu- continually impressed by Chris Paul well now the question comes and we'll do their 
their offseason preview later on but you know just thinking about it preliminarily the question is whether you will be amazed by Chris Paul and Blake Griffin or JJ Redick on another team next year Chris Paul's decision to me is the most compelling because it will illuminate what he really wants I mean you remember his yeah. last free agency it's, it's was a money bit- and and lifestyle and probably family I mean you don't want to uproot your family but money lifestyle family versus winning and I'm not going to make a value judgment on any of those things I mean you know money takes care of your family I mean maybe he's going to give more to charity if he makes more money I mean you, you don't want to say like oh he's just you know he's greedy because he wants to make more money like that's not what it is at all and you know does he want to go and live in San Antonio for the next four years I mean even if he could figure out a way to get there or you know who else who else knows where really uh they don't have a lot of great options for him I mean Boston Houston probably not you know with James Harden there it's not a great fit San Antonio would be a great fit but them getting the money would be pretty hard so there's a lot of a lot of variables here uh for Paul but you know I mean I think my guess right now is that I think he probably will return with I agree that with you deal. I agree with you but I think the other big factor and why I like the Clippers offseason in terms of intellectual curiosity is that I do think that if, if Blake Griffin decided first and he decided to leave that might be just a bridge too far because as we've talked about before you not you their offseason is interesting too but the Clippers do not gain much flexibility if one of their guys leaves they really need kind of wholesale change in that way and if they do that they're not going to be good enough to maximize what Chris Paul has left however long that is yeah I will say this though especially with the the monetary advantage that the Clippers have and the fact that LA is you know there's a great lifestyle there I think that Utah's win will have more of a positive effect on Gordon Hayward's future in Utah than the Clippers loss will have a negative effect on Blake Griffin and Chris Paul's future in LA. Sure, because Chris Paul and Blake Griffin know what they have. They know what they're getting into. Gordon Hayward, this is their first time in the playoffs together. So they're learning a lot. And the fact that they were able to get through the series, despite Gobert missing time with that hyperextended knee, still dealing with holdover injuries to seemingly every other player on their roster. Hayward basically missing a game due to food poisoning. They beat a good team, even if they were a limited good team. And I think they should be proud of that. I will say this, Gobert, we didn't get to see that much of him because he only played those 13 minutes, but he did look limited in terms of his mobility. Um, and that's going to be something to watch because uh, he's going to have to be damn mobile in the next series. And, and we'll, we'll preview that one tomorrow night since it doesn't start until Tuesday. Uh, but why don't we get to Boston and Washington? But first, this word from our friends at Blue Apron. So I finally stopped traveling, and that means it's time to start cooking at home again. I can't do it for dinner because we're doing the Twitter NBA show, but my girlfriend and I instead are breaking it out at lunchtime because she also has a a job where she's home a lot of times during the day. The big one I'm looking forward to this month, crispy salmon and roasted potato salad with pickled mustard seeds and creme fraiche sauce. Uh, Pickled mustard seeds, that actually sounds really good. Pickled anything I really enjoy, to be honest. That's interesting because the one that I'm I'm looking forward to, I think it's next week, is they did a cool thing i i had heard about it because you you can look through the the potential menu items ahead of time and so i knew that they were going to pick the winning dish from the show master chef jr and what it turned out being was it's a five spice salmon with roasted cauliflower and mashed sweet potatoes i'm like oh i, I was just excited about the concept but then finding it out they do seafood so well yeah their salmon quality is pretty good it's always like a, a wild salmon so far so The way to get started with Blue Apron, it is a food delivery service that brings pre-portioned ingredients to your home for less than $10 per person per meal. You get one shipment per week. It's dropped off at your door. The ingredients will keep throughout the week generally. And that allows you to avoid food waste. You know, if you think of you're trying to make a meal and you go get all the ingredients at the store, you're probably either going to have to buy too much or maybe, you know, you then you're not going to end up cooking for as many people or, or whatever. Like you end up probably wasting a lot of money and wasting a lot of food. Not going to happen with Blue Apron. Everything is perfectly uh, portioned out. So again, the way to get started with them, blueapron.com slash capspace is the URL. Capspace, easy to remember because we talk about it all the time on the program. And that'll get you your first three meals free with free shipping. Again, that URL, blueapron.com slash capspace. Let them know that you came from us by going to that URL. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. So I have a feeling that this series might really suck now. If And the reason why is Washington's health. They already were not 
not a deep team. We saw Markeith Morris get an awful ankle sprain as Al Horford, Bruce Bowen'd him, uh, like landed right underneath him. And I mean, that was, it was bad because Markeith was kind of going to his right. So as when you do that as a right-handed shooter, you kind of kick your right leg out and then you're going to land with your left leg first. So all of his weight came down on that left foot. And it wasn't even like he just like sprained it and then it popped right back. It was like inverted for like quite a long period of time as these things go. And he was down on the floor for a long time. Actually made his free throw amazingly because they wanted him to be able to stay in the game. But uh, he was ruled out soon thereafter. And it is difficult for me to imagine that at any point in like the next two or three games after how bad that was, that he's going to be able to be effective. And it wouldn't even shock me if he's going to be ruled out for the whole series. He said apparently to David Aldridge that it was the worst ankle sprain of his career and that he yeah. he thought it might be broken. And when you looked at it, it looked it, it did look kind of like that for a second, just because of the 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 kind of the amount of time it was inverted, as you said. And why that was relevant gets into this thing that I think crystallized for me this year with Cody Zeller, which is that a player does not have to be a team's best player to be really, really important if there are no suitable alternatives. So Markeith did say he will definitely play in game two against the Celtics, but uh, and that the medical staff said that he couldn't com- come back in the game in game one. We'll see about that. I mean, I think he he is... Uh... If it's the worst ankle sprain of his career, I, I would be surprised. Now, maybe if Jan Mahimi comes back and could give them something, he is still out with that calf injury. He's long beyond now that seven to 10 day initial timetable after which he was reevaluated. It doesn't really sound like he's that close either, to be honest, but maybe he can give them one more big man. And, and Jason Smith is kind of laboring as well, though I had one of their best stretches with Smith on the floor. But it's just they desperately need Markeith because I don't think they're going to miss him that much offensively, but they just have no prayer of stopping the Celtics team and they're like a worse rebounding team probably even than the Celtics now without Markeith as well they don't have the option of putting out any kind of a small lineup with him at center either you know it's got like their small lineup is like Jason Smith at center now that's not going to work uh and Gortat I'm not sure if he can guard those uh small Celtics lines he had a great first quarter and first half but obviously dropped off after that he had 14 in the first half and then after that only had two points in the second half and missed four of his five second half shots so it was not really too good for the Wizards and it looked so bright for them right at the start as they got out to a 16 to 0 lead and that's maybe the most striking thing about how our conversation started is that if you watch the beginning of this game go oh man I mean I was mentally I wasn't doing it physically because I thought that would be kind of jerky but I was kind of puffing my chest a little bit in my head of like you know I predicted the Wizards to win the series in six and part of the reason why is because I thought starting five versus starting five they were the better team and generally for me if I feel that way I'm probably going to pick that team in the series unless there's something heinous going the other way so you're sitting there and yeah of course the the Celtics cut cut the lead significantly and played a lot better after that stretch. But you're kind of sitting there going, okay, the underlying thesis there is sound. And then all of a sudden you think, oh, that doesn't matter anymore because now we're not going to see that at least full strength versus full strength for a while. I mean, Markeev can try to play, but I don't think he's going to be right. And that's more important in yeah. many ways. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Like it's to expect him to be 100%. And I mean, they really, they have to win one of these first two games. You know, I mean, you, there's a reason that, you know, you, you, otherwise you're, you're pretty much done in a series uh, if you don't win one of the first two and you're the road team so it's, well either way because you have to I win mean, you have you to just, win four yeah. out of five that's hard right right it's hard so, against almost anybody no it's it, it certainly is and i thought that one of the keys here was al horford was just getting his ass kicked in the first quarter like gortat was getting like every offensive rebound on the rare occasions that the whiz were missing and they were hitting a ton of shots too in that first quarter so brad stevens actually he first he went to amir johnson to try to get quell the offensive rebounding that didn't really work and then he said all right uh, al if you're not going to get a rebound and and there are quite a few of these Gortat rebounds that were just like right over Horford. You know, a lot of times he won't be in the play. He'll be out defending on the perimeter. So it's not necessarily his fault. But on these, he just w- was right there and just didn't get it. And so Brad Stevens took him out. And I'm guessing it was like, hey, you know, you're going to need to stew for a second and play a little bit better. And then he came back and it was just awesome. Uh, finished the game. He had five offensive boards of his own, 21 points, 10 assists, and 10 of 13 from the field. I mean, just one of the better games we've seen from a big man 
in these playoffs and just he was incredible it really just it ended up a, even though he was on the floor I think for that whole 16-0 start or pretty close to it he still ended up plus 21 for the game and his pick and roll partner was fabulous as well Isaiah Thomas was 11 of 23 from the field, 5 of 11 from three, which was a massive, massive improvement over his struggles in the Chicago series. Then he also had nine assists and no turnovers. And he responded to losing a tooth by drilling two threes when Boston couldn't score at all. Yeah, those were were big shots that he made to kind of get them back in it. And of course, you know, the bullshit three-shot foul that he got to open their scoring as well. But I mean, this was just utter failure by the Wizards defensively in this game. They gave up 39 three-point attempts and 32 assists and a buck 23 to a Celtics team that didn't score at all for like the first four or five minutes of the game. Boston like had really, yeah. Bo- Boston had two quarters, the second and third, where they had 150 plus offensive rating. Yeah, yeah, th- that's not very good at, at all. And uh, Boyan Bogdanovich got, he got hot as they briefly got back into contact at, at the end of the third quarter, but he got completely worked, uh, whether it was Olenek in the post, whether it was Bradley coming off of screens, he had, had one of the the worst defensive games that I've seen from a wing in a long time or at least one of the worst defensive halves uh despite the fact that he hit some shots later on in the game Kelly Oubre started off well hitting a couple of threes but ended up negative 22 he had to play 26 minutes that didn't go too well and while John Wall he started well too and he ended with 20 points and 16 assists he also had eight turnovers and wasn't as efficient throughout most of the game he hit a few shots late one of five from three but I thought also it looked like he actually tweaked his right ankle in the third quarter and didn't look quite the same athletically to me either in particular there is one dunk that he you normally would get that would he was just exploding on the Hawks off of that right foot in transition he he had to go in for a layup on that instead uh so you know if he's not going to be and he didn't show a ton of burst really after that either if he's going to be compromised and his didn't look nearly as bad as Marquise to be clear that's the issue and then Gortat also like he got engaged in the second half and sprained an ankle um walls happened they didn't I don't think they even showed it on the broadcast but it looked like walls happened as he was in it going for a defensive rebound uh against smart but when the teams are pretty evenly matched, as we, th- we thought, Larry, you said Wizards six, I said Celtics seven. I mean, if you just look at who has more injuries, uh, that'll tell you like who's going to lose the series. And the Wizards, unfortunately, are well on their way to doing that as a result. It's exactly what we just saw in the first round in the series that ended today. Yeah, with although uh, in that one, I think actually you could say that between Gobert's injuries and the Hayward food poisoning and guys like Hood and Favors coming off of basically spending the whole season injured, I thought actually the injury luck was about even in that series frankly um i think that you know but the jazz certainly had more depth uh but if you're gonna say you know we'll take two and a half games of blake griffin and i mean the jazz basically just got two and a half games of rudy gobert that's like a pretty even trade and then you know the clippers were healthier outside of that too i guess that's fair i did i i hadn't really thought of it that way but i guess that's fair and something else that was well don't worry like plenty of utah fans in my timeline did because i innocuously tweeted that hey chris paul didn't really look the same after his ankle and they're like give the jazz some credit like they had even worse injury luck i'm like hey i can't tell the story of the entire series in 140 character tweets i'm sorry like like those are actually probably the twitter responses that most kill me when it's just like i say just one factual thing like that and then it's like people try to read into my intentions to basically think that i'm saying well yeah that's why the clippers lost and it's like chill out man first of all they were down 15 when he injured himself secondly you know i thought the jazz were very close to winning the series anyway and of course they had their own problems but you know 140 character tweet it's like this is the summary of the series and now you have to respond with all this additional information like calm down i'm aware of all that yeah i'm gonna have a lot of fun with jazz fans in my mentions now for another series that's right i actually i mean overall i love jazz fans they're they're one way i mean if you gotta if you gotta compare jazz fans to clippers fans you know the atmosphere at vivint smart home arena versus the staples center in the series there's just no comparison so uh no jazz fans i love you i always have a great time there got a good sushi restaurant there i like uh skiing is good so uh not complaining about jazz fans more just certain general fans who uh but 
anyway, this is way too metal. Let's get back to actual basketball here. Yeah, so I had a place I wanted to go with. What else do you have to say on this game? This is not a surprise, but Washington's bench struggled to make an impact. Jason Smith had a nice stretch. Bogdanovich had a good stretch after being abysmal in the first half. But Brandon Jennings, not really there. Kelly Oubre hit two threes at the very beginning of the game, didn't make another three, was the basically the biggest Markeith replacement, did certain things all right, but just doesn't have the force Markeith has. And that's what happens when your, your team just doesn't have any bench depth and you're facing Boston, one of the deeper teams in the league, even if their top end talent is, you know, maybe not as good as Cleveland or something like that. They're certainly deep and Boston's bench completely outplayed them, in my opinion. Jennings has been so bad at this point that I think they just need to try Sadoransky. Maybe he's not going to work, but he at least he won't be this bad defensively. He's not good defending out in space one on one, but he at least will try to get over a screen. Like if you need to switch something, like he's at least like six six. He's not strong, but he's you know, and he's just a smart player who's not going to screw up as badly as Jennings is. And you know, I'm not saying he's going to be better, but Jennings has been so bad. You got to at least look for another alternative at this point. And, and while Sadoransky has a lot of limitations, he can't shoot. At least you can fall back on the fact that they've actually played pretty well with him on the floor when you compare him to either Burke or Jennings so uh, I would just give it a shot with him I think that's one adjustment that they might make but uh, you know I'm not really sure what else there is going into game two I mean maybe try and get Jason Smith out there a little bit more but he's limited with the calf injury and he's just you know a limited player in general basically and they're just gonna have to outscore Boston but if you're trying to outscore a team and they take 16 more three-pointers than you makes it pretty difficult and then they also miss a bunch of free throws in this game one two they're only 13 to 22 from the foul line and also they actually the celtics had a higher offensive rebound percentage in this one than the wizards did despite the fact that the wizards were killing them on the offensive glass in that 16-0 run and i'm sorry they did not have a higher offensive rebound percentage it was actually identical 32 percent for each of them yeah that's interesting so <laughs> basically I, I mean it's so hard to do this oh we got to talk about jalen jalen brown too yes actually. we do he was, he was huge coming in i mean it was pretty close still you know middle of the third fourth quarter because the Wizards had gotten back in contact actually you know the Celtics led by 15 to start the fourth and they at one point had Avery Bradley at the three with Rozier and Thomas and that was just too small of a lineup so Stevens went with Jalen Brown uh, Gerald Green was ineffective we said I think before the series that we thought maybe this would be more of a series for Brown uh working in small lineups with a little bit more size and a little bit more defensive ability because the reason Green was playing in the previous series was because they couldn't score and now they're going to be able to score fine in the series uh against this Washington defense that has been pretty atrocious throughout most of the playoffs I mean it's not like Atlanta had a good offense and they were scoring on him just fine so yeah Braun came in he hit a three had a great drive for a driving kick played some nice defense as well and you know so maybe he will return now to the rotation it was weird I think he played six minutes and it was like the last six minutes of the game something like that I mean or, or pretty much he didn't play at all until like you know when he came in in the fourth quarter which was uh surprising but you know the right button to, button to push there for Brad Stevens and considering Gerald Green and Amir Johnson combined for 15 minutes it certainly looks that Brad Stevens is open into trying new things to figure out that fifth spot. We should also mention Marcus Smart. I thought he had a, a, a solid overall game, and I thought he played the best defense on John Wall of any of their key players. Yeah, and also I thought that uh, while Beal shot well on threes and had 27 points, I thought that Avery Bradley did kind of make his life difficult off the dribble. They had to resort more uh, to a lot more to pin downs uh, uh, for Beal or for someone else to set up Beal. Um, so I thought Bradley was pretty good, even though he uh, was reverted a little bit offensively. He was only 7-20 from the field. Um, anything else you want to say here or shall we uh, move on i'm ready to not talk about this game for now how would you rank by the way these series in terms of the amount of intrigue for you Rocket Spurs is definitely number one for me because yeah, not there's, even just, close. there's so much to think about. Kevin Pelton, I, I had him on Real Jam Radio. We talked for a half an hour on that series and we could have gone for another 30 minutes. Like, there's just so much to so much to process. And I think it's going to unfold new layers each game and just to see how the dynamics work. Two, also pretty clear to me, Cavs Raptors, different series than last year, far more interesting in terms of personnel. Then the other two, and I think you put this, this in there as well well is that if Markeith were healthy it would definitely be Wizards Celtics third but without him if he, let's say he's not 100% until game four or even later then the Warriors Jazz jumps it yeah I mean, Warriors Jazz probably has the most collective talent of any series but it's just too much of it is on the Warriors side <laughs> and and there's still the health concerns for the Jazz again we'll, we'll talk more about that but yeah I mean I think just there's a lot of good players on the floor and a lot of interesting matchups in that series whereas this Boston Washington series now if Markeith is going to be out it's just 
gonna be all right they're both gonna go small boston has a better defense they're both gonna shoot a ton of threes and you know boston i think is gonna have a pretty major advantage in the series without markeith so yeah that that would be my ranking as as well uh all right we'll talk about those two series that start tomorrow momentarily but first this from indochino i'm about six foot six and i just have these big shoulders but like my chest is not really that small so if i go to try to get an off the rack suit I've got to get, you know, maybe maybe a 44 if I'm lucky will fit me, probably more like a 46. And if I get that, now it's just enormous around my torso if it's going to actually fit my shoulders. So, you know, they're like, oh, we can tailor that for you at the expensive department store where I'm getting this off the rack suit for, you know, high hundreds, maybe even over a thousand dollars. Don't worry, it'll look as good as new. But that's weird because all those suits that have been modified don't actually fit me as well as my Indochino suits do. Indochino makes it easy to get a perfectly tailored suit at an incredible price. And not only are you choosing to get it tailored, made to measure, but you also can choose from hundreds of top quality fabrics. So you're not just like cruising down the rack and trying to pick out something else that someone else thought would look good. Now you can decide. You can customize the lapels. You can customize the lining, the slant of the pockets. You can even get a custom suit for a wedding or another special occasion it's actually now much easier to do that and get a suit that actually fits you don't have to rent anymore so what do you get started with them indochino.com or you can drop by one of their nine north american showrooms enter that familiar cap space code which of course we talk about all the time on the program and that'll get you any premium indochino suit for just 389 when you enter that code at checkout and that code cap space of course will let them know that you came from us as well so indochino.com promo code cap space any premium made to measure suit just 389 dollars with free shipping get ready to look like a million bucks at indochino.com all right, well, let's preview it first, and then we'll we'll get to our picks. But should we update where we are in terms of our picks after the first round with that complete now? Sure, we can do that. So we picked the same we picked the same winners in every in every single series. So there were there weren't any any ambiguities there. We had so so basically the way we kind of do this is closest to the pin. So it's you know whoever whoever gets it. I got three series exactly right: Celtics and six, Raptors and six, Wizards and six. You had two that were closest. You said Cavs and five, it was four, and then you said Clippers and seven, the Jazz won game seven, and then so there were two that we tied. So I guess you could say I'm ahead four to two is probably i guess if we're going to count it that way that's the way to count it we should change the scoring system that that's not fair to you if you nailed three exactly i don't th- i did i nail any exactly i don't think i did. No, we'll figure no, out a terrible. scoring system i i gen- i genuinely don't care as much about that but we'll figure it out no it's and better radio you're, you're it's gonna, better radio I, if we're like foaming at the mouth about like how we're better at, at, at picking this like the people want to see us at each other's throats we, they yeah, say people we got excited when we started arguing on yeah. the twitter nba show today yeah the 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 focus groups have have decreed that we must hate each other I love I love when people like keep asking us on Periscope like hey do you guys like each other like no no actually we just hang out for like you know seven hours a day just for like no reason uh you know I can't stand the guy but you know I mean business is is uh trumps all that right yeah Yeah, what do you think uh so all right so that's where we are yeah you the three that you picked perfectly Celtics six Raptors six Wizards six uh so nice work on those ones and I think the interesting thing was I'm usually loath to pick the home team to win in six because it's a road game you were not at all bothered by that and I'm gonna do it again All right, let, let, let's talk Spurs and Rockets now. We've been typing this series, I mean, since it became apparent for probably two months now, and we're talking about the Spurs a lot, how they like to play too big, so that's going to be very difficult against Houston. What is Greg Popovich's response going to be? He never plays Kawhi Leonard at the four, so, and... Also, we've seen the Spurs going with a two-guard, two-point guard lineup to close games of Mills and Parker. And I don't know if that's going to fly against Houston either. But the biggest thing that I want to talk about for the Spurs is the supposed renaissance of Tony Parker. And so after that game six, we talked about that. And you noted that, you know, he'd been shooting a lot in the pick and roll and and a lot for mid-range. I mean, these mid-range shots that he's hitting, they are like really contested shots i think he's like 15 out of 26 from mid-range something like that i thought john schumann had that today and then he shot well on three pointers but he's only taken two above the break three pointers he's one out of two in the six games so it's all the corners he's still not really spacing the floor that much when he's off the ball either so even though you can argue that houston is not as good of a defensive team as memphis 
although they do have Pat Beverly, who you think maybe could give Parker some problems. I expect Parker's performance to regress mightily in this series. So do I. And the Spurs are, are going to need him just because to keep pace with the Rockets. This gets into something that you and I had teed up, which never ended up coming to be, which was the, the Spurs issue scoring against the Warriors, theoretically. And yeah, the Warriors defense is a, a whole lot better than the Rockets defense is, but they're going to need Kawhi to be awesome. They're going to need LaMarcus to be awesome. And they're going to need Tony Parker. And my biggest thing to watch in this series by a pretty significant margin is how San Antonio defends Harden in the pick and roll. Yeah, that's going to be an interesting one too. And I don't think they have the personnel to play it two on two. Uh, I mean, now they got Kawhi and they got Danny Green. That's two great guys on ball, but the screens still work for a reason. You can't get over every single screen. And if you do, then they'll just rescreen you again. I mean, Houston, this is another thing that Schumann had. Houston ran 78 ball screens per game. So that's basically a ball screen on three quarters of their possessions. Uh, and I don't know how that's tracked as far as like, okay, if you screen and then rescreen, does that count as one screen or two? Uh, but, and you know, most of the time that's James Harden. Sometimes it's better sometimes it's Gordon and and Kawhi if he has to guard Harden he could get worn out you know I would expect to see Danny Green with the primary assignment on Harden maybe they'll switch up late but you mentioned it that San Antonio is going to maybe have some trouble scoring which is interesting to say because San Antonio had the best offense of any team in the first round but I really think although they thrive on those mid-rangers and they hit them extremely well they also shot incredibly well on threes which they do but you know this was even better than normal and so I think they're just just in for a regression normally and with Tony Allen out for Memphis you know I'm not sure how good of a defensive team Memphis even necessarily was and they do have some individual defenders who can make life difficult for guys like Parker but on the other hand they have really nobody I think who can effectively guard Kawhi I think that's fair but something else that I want to watch in this series so we've talked about the idea of Kawhi not guarding Harden for the for the primary stretches of the game and I completely agree with that Kevin Pelton said the same thing when I talked with him about it but the Rockets don't have places to hide Kawhi where he can still gum up the works as a help defender because they don't play players other than centers who have unreliable jump shots. So you can't put Kawhi on Ryan Anderson. Uh, I on... think you could put him on. I think he'll guard Ariza most of the time. I but do you say. think they're going to just give up Trevor Ariza shooting threes or rely on Kawhi no, doing but, two but, things I mean, at once? But that's why, yeah, that's why Kawhi Leonard is so good. He can help and then recover on those plays. So I, I think an Ariza is not just like he doesn't have have the ability to step out like you know two feet two steps beyond the three-point line the like way gordon, gordon and anderson can um but yeah i mean it, even though they don't have a ton of great guys to guard Kawhi, and he shot 55 percent from the field and 48 percent on threes and he got to the foul line for 10 attempts a game in that first run series while averaging 31 a game uh in only 38 minutes to less minutes than a lot of these guys are playing so i don't think he can quite sustain that level of pace but you know i mean i, I wouldn't put a ton past him but it's got to take a step back a little bit you would think and as you talked about a little bit before, but I think it warrants a lot of repeating, the Spurs have been exceedingly reluctant to play anything other than two traditional big men on the floor. And a lot of times those were even lineups that you would think wouldn't make intuitive defensive sense like the David Lee, Pau Gasol. I mean, Lee has played the best defense of his career, but Houston challenges teams defensively in ways that other teams broadly do not. I mean, the Warriors obviously do, but those combinations I think will eventually prove closer to untenable. And something else I want to watch, we can talk about that, but also how about these teams use their bench? Because we don't know if Sam Decker is going to be back in this series, but basically Houston has gone eight deep. San Antonio has more guys but they're not necessarily great it's more just kind of like other options that do that that fill the same potential roles yeah the benches is going to be really interesting in san antonio obviously a great bench houston's bench i mean obviously oklahoma city had their own problems with their bench but houston's bench just destroyed oklahoma city especially when westbrook was off the floor and Another thing that I'm really going to watch is the foul line. Houston, of course, amazing at getting to the foul line. Harden, Lou Williams, they know all the tricks. They they get passes to the roll guy. You got to follow them. And San Antonio is, of course, you know, perpetually one of the best teams at not fouling. And I do wonder a little bit if they can't get to the foul line, can Houston score quite as well as we hope? I mean, because Ryan Anderson is in a big slump right now, and he's going to be a very, very key player because if you don't have 
Anderson, then the matchups kind of get messed up a little bit more, right? Because now you got to play Ariza at the four. Who are you going to have guard LaMarcus Aldridge if he's at the four now, right? I mean, it's got to, Anderson's got to at least provide some modicum of size, though I don't think he can really guard LaMarcus anyway. And so, you know, LaMarcus can get into the post and he can get hot. I, this is kind of my prediction that's starting to crystallize in this series. I think that early on, the Spurs actually will play maybe better than we think they are going to. And that as it goes on, the Spurs' defensive weaknesses, Houston is just going to start to really attack those. And I mean, they could, the Spurs couldn't stop Memphis last series, although Memphis shot amazingly well on threes. And I think it's just going to be, all right, David Lee, you're in the game. We're get, we're running a pick and roll at you and you're going to have to switch on to James Harden. Or David Lee, you're in the game. We're going to put you on the backside and help while you're guarding Ryan Anderson. There's no way you're closing out on him. And David Lee is, uh, compared to Pau Gasol, uh, an amazing defensive player. Pau Gasol is just, I mean, if Pau Gasol averages more than 15 minutes a game in the series i'd be pretty surprised frankly um and so i think that eventually houston is going to start to pick at them and we'll get to the point where maybe the spurs can't stop that unless they just miss threes um, i think they'll do a good job of not falling but i think they're going to give up a lot of threes in this series uh even though of course their defense is built on not doing that another big point of concern for the spurs is that they have wing depth jonathan simmons manu ginobili certainly both talented players but it's not really at the level where you sit there and go, okay, if we're going to put Kawhi at the four, we can plug and play one of those two guys and not freak out about it. Manu hasn't been great in the playoffs. He did look better in the later games of that Memphis series. And Simmons has been completely marginalized by circumstance. In the last round, they handled that by going with that Parker Mills combination, which it's not unplayable against the Rockets, but it's pretty close to it. Yeah. I mean, one of those guys, I mean, you could maybe hide one of those guys on Ariza. That might be the hope. But if Ariza is the four, then you know it becomes even more difficult yeah you're gonna put yeah, one of those guys on lou williams yeah um yeah i mean like parker actually is not as bad as people think he is defensively i think he actually is especially as he's playing less minutes now he actually can compete pretty well um and, and he does have pretty good stamina and, and mills too i think like those guys are not bad defensive players but i think the greater problem is just like pop has got to trust danny green i don't care if danny green is one for seven on threes pop has had this thing where he's just like all right i'm not gonna play danny green danny green's got to play 40 minutes game in the series because he still always is going to get guarded and they just need his defensive contribution on Harden. Yeah, and this is another series going back to something you and I talked about a couple of playoffs ago in the early days of Dunked On. Popovich does have this habit of m- trying to make statements at weird times. He did that in the in the Memphis series in game three. He pulled all of his starters and you know eventually started cycling them back in. Legendary Kawhi in game seven of that series against the Clippers and their margin against the Rockets, if they're even favored, like favored kind of overall is so limited that those kind of things could swing a game all right let's get some picks here you first spurs and seven shit (sighs) i thought you were going to pick the rockets this is this is another one of those ones similar to that jazz clippers series right like I kind of believe that the Jazz are the better team. I kind of believe that the Rockets are the better team. Yeah, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going Rockets in six. I'm doing I got to catch up anyway. I got I to start getting a little more outside the box here. And um, this but series... No, I, I mean, I think I just like... like and I just... The Spurs have disappointed a lot in the playoffs. They're, I know that they were better during the regular season, but not that much better, actually. And the Spurs, uh, the number of wins they had over Houston, uh, was a lot of that was due to their outperforming in close games. And the Spurs have been pretty damn good in close games, too, by the way. Uh, and when, especially when you can put Kawhi on their best player down the end of the game, like that's a huge advantage. But... I mean, I think I just got to go with my gut here and like and what I believe in. And I believe that when other things are equal, that more spacing and more shooting beats just a, a little bit more of this slow down approach, the two bigs approach. Now, if Pop, if they get down in the series and Pop starts playing Kawhi at the four and LaMarcus at the five, then maybe I'll end up being wrong. But I just, I the history has shown Oklahoma City last year being a perfect example that he does not quite have that level of flexibility in the playoffs. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go with Houston in six games even though i i predict that the spurs i could see the spurs winning game one like relatively comfortably and then i think game two is going to decide the series whoever wins game two that's who is going to end up winning the series to me i feel like i'm going to be uncomfortable with picking the spurs the entire way like as much as i believe that they have talent i know i I just didn't want to be in that position anymore like i was just like hey you know what like at some point home court advantage like i'm done with home court advantage like i'm just picking the team that i think is better yeah it's tough and and Kawhi. 
being the difference maker that he was in that first round is even made it even harder harder for me. And like also, he's going to have about, to do it by himself. He's going to he have to is. do it by himself. I mean, I, I spent most of the conversation we had on this talking about the flaws of the Spurs. It, it's so hard in that way, and it's not so much for me that they have home court advantage. It's that they have the best player, and I think that the Rockets have harder counters to that. I think that the, having two guys to throw at Harden is a huge advantage, and Ariza is going to have to do a good job. But when one thing we haven't talked about that Kevin and I did a little bit was we both felt that LaMarcus Aldridge might actually be more important in this series defensively than offensively just because of the way he was turned into a low usage guy by Kawhi being so good. Yeah, that's a thought. I mean, he's clearly their best defensive big man. And maybe, you know, another thing maybe is like, you know, if Deadman plays more, you know, know, maybe that'll be something that they'll have a better chance of defending Houston. Um yeah, and maybe I, I, I still am just a little bit wary of Harden too. You know, that maybe he just is not going to have that good of a series and that maybe that's how San Antonio ends up winning this thing. You know, uh, uh, but I just, I don't think that they can stop him two on two in the pick and roll. And now he's, then he's setting up these three-point shooters and, it, and it's going to, you know, so. Uh, all right, let's move on to Cavs wraps r- real quick here. So oh, I was, I uh, was going to do that. Yeah. You said can't be able to stop him two on two and setting up three-point shooters. I was going to segue that straight into LeBron because I think that's a big part of this series. And my, so I don't think we need to talk as much about this series, though there are plenty of things to be interested in. My biggest point here is that the Raptors are better than they were last year at this point. You know, well, that was the conference final, so it's one round earlier. I think the Cavs are worse as well, but I don't think either of those yeah. statements is enough to, to bridge the gap. I mean, yeah, I think that six game series might have been like the biggest point differential for like any six game series in history or something like that. And with how and. I mean, games one, two, five, and six, like none of those were even like within spitting distance of being close in that series last year. But I think there's a chance for the Raptors in this series. I don't want to say that I think that the Raptors will slow down the Cavs on defense, but I think there's a chance that they could. And that is different than it was last year. They are the highest ceiling defensive team in the entire Eastern Conference playoffs. I think that's right. You know, you've got Ibaka, and I don't think that the the Cavs really are well equipped to stop the Raptors either. You know, they don't have anyone to guard DeRozan uh, unless it's going to be LeBron late in games. And then even you know, if you put LeBron in a pick and roll, you know, maybe the way maybe the what they do on DeRozan is that you know they try to switch to Tristan Thompson onto him, and I think Thompson actually in a switch can shut down DeRozan completely because DeRozan just doesn't have the quickness to blow by him, and Thompson has a lot of length to really bother his shot. So I think that's something that could work. And but I think the Raps are going to be able to score okay in this series. It, it would they got the spacing from Ibaka. We have no idea who the hell they're going to start now. You know, are they going to stick with that starting lineup from the Bucks series? I hope that they do. Um, but I, and actually, no, I don't. I hope that they just start PJ Tucker instead of Damari because I think he's just going to have to play you know 30 minutes a game. The one issue though is I can see Cleveland just not guarding Tucker at all by well, the end I think of the what, series. I think what they're going to do is they're going to use those minutes on the other end for LeBron to just be the rover and completely wreck Toronto's offense. Yeah, the, that could be very well the case. Um, also, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, they, you can't start Demari. They're. It would shock me actually if they start Demari Carroll because they. You can't start with him on Love. You know, especially because they love to go to Kevin Love in the first quarter to establish him and then never go back to him because he's now been established. But. So I think maybe maybe they even start Tucker at the four and Carroll at the three and have him guard LeBron at the start. Tucker, I think, can defend Love very well. So that's maybe another way they could go. Or they could just go back to more of a conventional starting lineup, steal a few minutes for Valanchunas. I and mean, you're probably better off playing Valanchunas against their starters just to match up with Thompson. And because they've been playing Valanchunas, you know, off the bench. And if you put him in at the start of the second quarter against that LeBron uh, at the four Fry at the five lineup with, you know, Corver out there and J.R. Smith or, or Shumpert and, and, Darren Williams, like they'll they'll never stop him. I mean, they got to go t- uh, uh, Ibaka at five, Tucker at four, I think, to match up with that lineup. So how Casey does his matchups, I think, is going to be really big in this series. I don't know that I quite trust him to do that that well. I think 
think that Lou does a better job of doing substitutions and seeking out the matchups and also he's got LeBron playing 45 minutes a game <laughs> so uh that's a, that's gonna be difficult for the Raps bench to really take much control as well and LeBron if he on the rare times he does sits usually sits at the end of the first and the end of the third which is when they don't have their best bench unit out there it's usually the DeRozan plus bench which is less effective than the Lowry plus bench I'm excited to see LeBron plus bench versus Lowry plus bench I mean those lineups have both been very good over the course of the year but as you said Lowry plus bench could look different depending on how Dwayne Casey uses Valanchunas in this series yeah. and Valanchunas can't play a single minute unless Tristan Thompson is on the floor like they Agreed. just have to be they have to be totally disciplined about that because they're you give up two threes in a row to fry and now the game is totally different I agree with you 100% and I want to see how Toronto Toronto has all these pieces that we've never really seen all the way together especially with the emergence of Norman Powell at the end of that playoff series and I don't think Cleveland is the best place to really put that all together because of how good the Cavs are but Serge Ibaka defense uh, like at center defensively is going to get a, a big test here I'm excited to see it we've never really gotten that you know that kind of a player against LeBron in a Eastern Conference series like, I don't like, can you think of any like really athletic set like kind of kind of Serge Ibaka centers that I mean I guess KG when LeBron was younger and I'm not saying Ibaka yeah, no, Noah yeah Noah. Noah's a little he's a little bit different I mean Noah's Noah at his prime was better yeah than he's Ibaka not as explosive right but yeah um no, but Noah is a better defensive player than Ibaka in his prime, yeah, and even probably a better switch guy. Even, uh, but that'll be interesting too. You know, how much are the Raptors going to be willing to switch now if, if uh, they're going to switch those small, small pick and rolls? Are, are there Tucker, Ibaka? Those guys can probably get out okay. They're probably not really going to hunt DeRozan because teams just for whatever reason don't do that. And Lowry is not. I mean, he's, he's going to struggle against someone like LeBron at times, but. You know, he's better than most point guards just with his strength. So they may switch a little bit more. I think they're going to have to change up their defense a lot. Uh, but, you know, the one guy we haven't talked about yet is Kyrie Irving. And I think that if this gets into be more of a switch series, that's really where Irving can excel. He is such a phenomenal offensive player at, at getting his shot. And we talked in the in the series of the Clippers Jazz series about how Jamal Crawford can get a 40% shot basically whenever he wants. Kyrie Irving can do that, but it's a much more efficient shot than Jamal Crawford's 40 and he can do it against good defense and I'm the I'm not confident that the Raptors will have great defenders on him all the time no that's well I mean Joseph isn't bad Lowry depends what his energy level is he's not bad um so I don't know and it'll also be interesting to see how is Cleveland going to defend they had the most success in that Pacers series the only time they were even remotely able to defend the middling Pacers offense was when they went to a bunch of switching with that LeBron at the four lineup and had that miracle comeback in game three so and they defended golden state well with that switching so is that what they're just going to do is a lot more switching and uh and they're just going to get into a lot of involuntary switches too because anytime Kyrie's in a pick and roll he just doesn't get over the screen and then thompson just has to guard whoever the ball handler is um and then is someone like DeRozan? is he going to be able to beat those switches one-on-one lowry maybe not as equipped to do that as he was a couple of years ago uh, ibaka like is he going to post up on guys valentunas like can't post up anymore now for whatever reason um so it's i mean i i want to believe in the raptors a little bit like i like i said i like their defense it's just i i think that cleveland is still just too explosive and i just you know kind of thinking about it i was like okay you know they can't spend a single minute this way with valentunas out there because like fry you know he could hit a couple of three points and it just it seems like there's Cleveland is just this massive dam that's about to burst and all the Raptors are just kind of leaning against it and you know various leaks will spring and they're just racing around and if they're not just absolutely perfect in it you know Cleveland goes on a 10-0 run and then they're done you know I I, I think it's going to be a lot of that series well I think the Raptors will play well throughout stretches of games in this series especially when Cleveland is not that engaged defensively but then there'll just be that one 10-0 stretch where Cleveland hits a bunch of bunch of threes and you're like well you know they played great except for that um so i will go first with my prediction here since you went first for the last series i will go with the cleveland cavaliers winning this in six games yep same thing and all right so our big this this houston san antonio is the big one here well and we disagreed on on celtics wizards and i'm gonna lose so yeah we'll see i mean who knows like someone on boston could get hurt too you know i mean there's <laughs> there are a lot i mean i would be actually very interested to see what the difference is between the injury rate in the playoffs and the regular season and maybe not even necessarily like whether guys play but just like 
how many times like guys just like suffer an injury and are on the injury report because guys are going to play in the playoffs more than in the regular season but it wouldn't surprise me if there were just a higher per game or per minute injury rate in the playoffs just because guys are playing that much harder you know i think that's like a, and a they're big playing more even minutes. though yeah yeah more minutes although there aren't any back-to-backs which theoretically helps i think it actually so yeah, i know I maybe i'm wrong about that and maybe it's just that we remember playoff injuries in a way that we don't for uh regular season injuries that's certainly possible as well remember when we were going to do news let's do like a few news items maybe we won't get to all of them see let me see what uh well i think we should start with larry bird i think that's the most yes, important yeah part. that's that's the one that we have to do i think other than that we can kind of wait for some of these a little bit later but uh yeah larry bird will step down and i think it, in fact has stepped down in india Indiana, uh, and it sounds like they're going to soldier on with Kevin Pritchard, who has eminently qualified himself, a former GM in Portland for a number of years, did a nice job building up those Brandon Roy, LaMarcus Aldridge teams, uh, although he was the guy who drafted Greg Oden over Kevin Durant, but I don't hold that against him too bad. Most of the GMs would have done that. Uh, and of course, the speculation is now rampant over what does this mean for Paul George's future? My personal opinion is that it's more likely now that he gets traded. I think so too because I could have seen Bird getting more stubborn and just being being mad and Pritchard from what I've I, I don't have any real direct interactions with him he feels a little bit more pragmatic in that way so it's basically like well if he's going to leave we might as well get something for him and, and well I and could- also this is I would say this too I think that after they lost you know so in four games that maybe Bird was just like hey you know what like I ain't down for this like we're gonna have to trade him I'm just like I don't want to go through another rebuild like we're gonna suck like I'm just gonna get out of this yeah that's possible too um yeah that's just again this is all total speculation but it kind of seems like that's and and, but frankly though i will say this i think that the indiana pacers are better off without larry bird at this point because they have bird has had some transactions in the last few years that really have indicated to me that the game has kind of passed him by the signing of rodney stuckey although that wasn't as bad of a contract as we thought it was because they actually were able to waive him before he put in his player option but still not a great contract the trade for jeff teague the monte ellis signing which of course is, is the biggest one that was a disastrous signing al jefferson the, yeah yeah that did i mean he just missed the whole playoffs with a a, a sprained ankle but you know he wouldn't have helped him at all against cleveland and, and he wouldn't have i mean he wouldn't have helped him against any of these <laughs> eastern conference teams i mean there's that is just have way too much shooting on the floor at center for him to deal with and and he's just you know not good enough defensively even against uh, in normal pick and roll defense and you know a, a lot of things like that so it just seemed like his approach was all right let's get as many guys with as high a points per game on the team as we can we'll have a good offense right because you know hey if we got five guys on the floor each score 20 points a game we're going to score 100 points a game right uh no it's, it's actually not quite how it works and so I think that his approach to team building seemed a little bit antiquated to me, and I would suspect that they will be a little bit more modern in their thinking now. And, you know, he did draft, Bird has had an illustrious career. He was a great coach for them. Uh, he put together some great teams from the front office. You know, he drafted Paul George. He, he took a hiatus, and they actually had some bad moves during that period. Came back. He was there for the drafting of Miles Turner, although I think most people would have had Turner get picked there, so I don't know how much credit to give him there. So I don't want to say that overall Bird's tenure as an executive has been bad. I mean, they've rebuilt several times, and the only time that they really have missed the playoffs since 2011 was the year that Paul George broke his leg, and George Hill and Ray Hibbert missed a ton of time that year, and they still almost made the playoffs. Uh, so yeah, I, I do think I thought that that young trade was actually a pretty decent trade for them too. So I don't want to say that he has been like a bad executive overall, but I think in the last couple of years, there have been some indications that, you know, maybe his thinking is not as modern as we would like. The unfortunate part of this timing is that normally, and, and you could say because Pritchard is a different kind of continuity that maybe it's a little bit different, you would a GM would want to bring in their new coach, but they just hired Nate McMillan, and I don't know that their ownership is going to be willing to fork over the money necessary to pay McMillan while also paying a new coach. So maybe they'll have to have that as an awkward transition in the future. Yeah, that could be the, the case as well. But, you know, and I'm not sure, I mean, has there been an announcement that like Pritchard is just the guy from now on? and Or is there a thought that there could be another person who would come in as a president? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, I haven't know. heard any indication either way, but it seems like he's stepping down and they have this other guy there who's uh, so... 
at least through the draft i wouldn't imagine that they would bring someone else yeah. in but you know and maybe we'll see what happens now with george too um well and i think but, but pritchard is perfectly qualified to handle those negotiations for absolutely sure. and so the other thing i think that we have to tie this into because larry bird is one of the seemingly myriad contenders for the orlando magic job including david griffin including kevin McHale. kevin McHale, which is uh that would be a surprise to me. Uh, one of those things is not like the other, and that is David Griffin. But it has been reported by Windhorse that the Magic, though they have not yet asked for permission to speak to him due to the fact that the Cavs are in the playoffs, they will, in fact, offer him their president job. And, of course, you know, that's a convenient leak from Griffin's camp as well because the Cavs have not yet engaged him in significant extension talks. And, I mean, I would be shocked if Griffin doesn't come back, frankly, unless, and I think that, you know, Dan Gilbert will will pay to keep him, unless he just, he's a very prideful guy, right? You remember that in 2010, I believe he was offered the GM job when Steve Kerr left because Kerr felt that Robert Sarver had promised to take care of a bunch of his guys and Kerr's contract was ending and Sarver failed to do that. And so that was part of why there was a falling out and Kerr didn't return. And then Griffin's like, yeah, you know what? I'm not going to do it either. Uh, Then they ended up hiring Lance Blanks and uh, yeah, that didn't go too well. Uh, but and then Griffin you know he's a guy who's survived cancer twice now so uh, he's a guy who's not gonna be like oh you know I have to do this like he's willing he feels like he's lucky to be in the position that he's in and he wants to be somewhere where he's really going to be valued and if and you know if Dan Gilbert doesn't make him feel that way then you know maybe you could see just from a personal standpoint he want to leave but I mean why would he want to leave <laughs> I mean you've got LeBron he's done a great job there presumably Gilbert will pay up so uh but it is interesting it's it's hard to value these GM candidates, right? I mean, the market for GMs was kind of pretty low. I mean, even Masai Ujiri, who had a ton of success with the Nuggets, he didn't get much of a, a contract initially. I think it was like $3 million a year, and the Nuggets like didn't even want to match that. And then he now got a lucrative new extension with toronto and of course phil jackson is getting 12 million a year to do probably the least work of any actual team president uh so but that kind of sets the market a little bit too but generally gms have not made that much as much as coaches you know coaches like stan van gundy are getting seven million for the dual role doc rivers is getting 10 popovich is probably you know into like you know 12 13 something like that it's not exactly reported where he's at but i think he's the highest paid one in the league so it can be a little bit difficult because David Griffin can be like, hey, you know what? Like, I'm going to leave if you don't pay me. And the magic might back up the truck. And Dan Gilbert can say, well, hey, you know, we're offering you a great salary for a GM. And he, so GM salaries like are difficult to compare. And frankly, I don't think that GMs get paid enough. It's not something that's subject to the salary cap. And you think about all the all the increases that happened in the new television world where, you know, the players' salaries went up so much, but that's only half of the equation. The owners are still getting the other half. And I, I'm still waiting some of that money has gone into facilities but i assume that gms could be another part of it well and it's the gm is the spot where it's most damaging to your team to have somebody bad because now you're screwed for five years if you get a bad coach you can always just fire him you know he's probably not gonna like cause lasting consequences to your your franchise and you know bad players yeah that's not great you know certainly you can get really hamstrung by signing the wrong guy but But you know who signs that wrong guy (laughs) yes yes exactly all right that'll do it for today's show thank you so much for listening thank you also to those of you who subscribed on patreon we really appreciate that patreon.com slash duncan larue danny and i are are splitting that 50 50 mostly if you enjoy the twitter nba show we hope that since we're making that completely free no ads that you'd view a patreon subscription as a way to support that and we thank everyone who has signed up already that that's been amazing and you know we're not there yet but we're certainly on our way towards making that twitter nba show a permanent thing if we can uh increase that subscription base and we're off to a great start after you know four days we really appreciate that and also those subscribers as well get some extra benefits like that early podcast that we did on Thursday about uh, Raptors box and Spurs Grizz we're gonna do things like you know if we do the mock off season we'll just post like in writing the results of that you know that's another thing that we can do for subscribers we're gonna have a private Periscope channel uh, for subscribers as well that you know we can just pop on and do Q&A's every once in a while or maybe during the season we'll do a private Periscope of some games during the regular season Um, so we'll try to give you guys some benefits I mean it's not an unbelievable amount of stuff we hope 
hope that between those benefits and just generally want to wanting to support some of our stuff that's not uh, ad supported that we can make it worth it to you and if you subscribe and it doesn't sound like it's worth it to you or you're thinking about subscribing and it doesn't sound quite worth it to you and there's something we could do that would make it worth it to you we would appreciate that feedback eight at nate duncan mba on twitter and at danny larue on twitter and uh that'll do it for today's program thank you so much and we'll be back tomorrow night with a discussion of two more of the game ones that we just previewed till then every day our world gets a little more connected but a little further apart but then there are moments that remind us to be more human Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy.